This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. It's boom time for jobs. The economy adding more than 330,000 new positions last month. So we'll go in-depth as some say this could actually be bad news. Electing a new speaker, one Republican gets a very big endorsement. Also, we're going to talk with filmmaker Ken Burns about an animal that has become an American icon but was nearly wiped out. We start with the latest jobs report. Chris Thornburg is founding partner of uh, Beacon Economics. It's based in Los Angeles. Chris, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. So most politicians, uh, Biden, I presume, will be among them, would love to boast about uh, job expansion. 330,000 new positions in a month is nothing to sneeze at. So why would anybody consider that to be potentially bad news? <laughs> well, um, uh, let's be careful when you by what you mean by which people would think this is bad news. My feeling is if you're in the real estate industry, this is horrible news. Because continued job growth means continued pressure in labor markets, which means continued upward pressure on wages. And that, of course, is going to continue to feed into inflation. And that, in turn, will cause the Federal Reserve, who has oddly determined that the little bit of inflation we're seeing is somehow or other dramatically bad for the U.S. economy. They will, of course, continue their efforts to tighten. And that's very bad news for real estate. So that's that's the chain of connection there you're referring to. You know, it always seems funny to me, and I admittedly am not a smart guy when it comes to uh, finances, but for those of us who live on the street level, uh, we yeah. see a jobs report like this and we think, man, that is great news because more of us are working. More people working has got to be great for the economy. But then along comes the financial experts who say, well, the economy is overheating. Uh, overheating. No, 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 you can't have that. We're going to have to raise interest rates and make it harder for you to borrow money so that it'll be harder for you to spend money and then more of you will get fired. Why does it seem to some of us like to fix the economy, you've always got to hurt the working person? Well, and, and but you're, you're, look, your point is is absolutely dead on because what we're talking about here is the narrative of the Federal Reserve versus the reality of what's happening out there. Um, Jerome Powell has been on record saying that he believes that inflation is driven by inflation expectations, which, uh, to be clear, is not economics. I don't know what it is. It's nonsense. But in his world, he really thinks that there's a lot of people suffering because of inflation and as a result of that, he has to break of, of our inflation expectations. And to your point, that means tightening until the market flinches, until the economy flinches. But if you take a step away from that silliness and you look what's going on, your point is exactly right. This economy is not suffering because of inflation. The little bit of inflation we're seeing is driven by good, strong demand that in turn is driven by good, solid wage growth. Now, there's little doubt that there's some signs of frothiness. I think the stock market is too high. We know housing prices are, are too high right now because of those low interest rates. But yet again, this was all driven by Federal Reserve choices a few years ago. It will burn off on its own. There doesn't seem to be any reason to need to actually hurt the economy to accomplish this. But again, trying to get an economically realistic conversation into this inflation narrative in the Federal Reserve, well, those that connection just doesn't seem possible. Why not? You know, 
we I, I've always said for a long time, or really since in the last decade, but we live in the age of miserableism. And in Washington, D.C., the political story that everybody sticks with is the world is terrible. Our children are going to have a worse standard of living than us. Real wages are declining rapidly. And the end is nigh. And to be clear, this is all the fault of the other part, political party. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's their story. And in this story, you cannot allow room for the real story, which is the economy is doing great. What do we worry about? Um, it, it is an, an unfortunate consequence of this ugly partisanship we've seen creep into our nation, creep into our political conversations that we've 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 clung on to this myth. And we continue to end up doing more harm to the U.S. economy than helping it uh, as a result of it. Um, it's crazy. But the only thing I can say is as crazy as it is, this is kind of standard operating procedure for governments. And it has been forever, really, since the dawn of civilization. All right. Chris Thornburg, thank you so much. Founding partner of Beacon Economics based in Los Angeles. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Still ahead, a new streaming move may be another nail in the coffin of cable TV. Right now, though, Congress looks to get back on track next week with the election of a new House speaker, Mike Madrid. He's a Republican political consultant based in Sacramento. Mike, thanks for being back with us. Sure. Great to be with you. So the Chaos Caucus succeeded in dethroning the Speaker of the House, but there does seem to be some division even among the, those in the caucus about whom should succeed uh, Mr. McCarthy. So how is this going to be settled? Well, the, the, the divide is extraordinarily bitter and it's not a small, uh, schism here. It's, it's probably evenly divided with, with Congressman Scalise, the number two in the house under McCarthy with a slight lead. Of course, Jordan, um, has secured the endorsement of Donald Trump, which both helps galvanize some of those undecideds, but also cements some of those who feel that the party is going in the wrong direction under Donald Trump. So um, I look, there, there are also very significant signs that the inability of either of these two members to get a majority could actually bring uh, a move to, to have Kevin McCarthy reinstated as speaker. So it's a very chaotic environment right now with, with kind of voices and votes all over the place. And of course, now sources are saying that uh, Kevin McCarthy might uh, leave Congress before his uh, term is over. That's even uh, more chaos. I wanted to ask you about Donald Trump endorsing uh, Jim Jordan. Mm -hmm. uh, given a lot of Republican strategists who have looked at Donald Trump's record of endorsements and have uh, uncovered the fact that it's not as good as it's played up to be, if uh, Donald Trump has endorsed Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan does not become Speaker of the House does that further erode Donald Trump's support among the Republican Party? That's a really great question, and that is actually the question I'm looking to see. If Jim Jordan doesn't get uh, a majority on the first vote after receiving Donald Trump's endorsement, I think that says that there's a very significant uh, not only schism in the party, but maybe the Trump fever is starting to break. Of course, a lot of people have been suggesting that for the past eight years, and it's never been the case. But look, now, uh, to your point, his imprimatur in Republican primaries was not helpful, uh, or I'm sorry, in general elections was not helpful. It was extraordinarily helpful in primaries. Um, the question now becomes with kind of the leadership, the elected leadership of the Republican Party, if he, if Donald Trump's endorsement is not able to coalesce 
um, the the votes behind a leader, it absolutely brings into question his ability to unite the Republican Party broadly. And I think that saw, that signals an extraordinary cleavage in the GOP that could be disastrous for them heading into uh, the 2024 presidential election. So there have been occasions in American history where a party has vanished and a new one has actually emerged. Uh, is this that time? That's a really good question, too. Uh, you know, as somebody who has been vocally anti-Trump for the entire time of his uh, candidacy beginning in 2015, um, I will tell you that those that were strongly anti-Trump were just have been just a small sliver of voices. Uh, but it's growing. It's significantly growing and it's moving beyond a faction towards its own viable block. Um, and I don't think that there's any reconciliation between those of us that are classical conservatives and sort of Trump populist nationalists. The question becomes, does a disastrous election further uh, break that cleavage apart? You have to remember, this is not a traditional party right now. It's not a traditional political party. The cleavages are are ideological. Uh, and so they're behaving more like a mob. And it's not a traditional fight over moderate versus conservative Conservative, true classical conservatives like myself have very fundamental disagreements with populist nationalism that are 180 degrees apart. In fact, we believe that the, the, the Trump people are a much greater threat to the country than Democrats are. So we're, we're siding and working with Democrats to defeat them. And of course, politics makes strange bedfellows. But if you had a leadership role in the GOP right now and people actually listened to you, what would you tell them uh, going forward? Here's what you guys need to do. Well, I could very clearly tell them what they need to do to get into, uh, you know, back into contention and be a viable party. But as you said, you know, that they're not going to listen. But but what they need to do is they need to start showing what they are against as opposed to trying to to articulate what they're for at this moment in time. And by what they're against means this Trumpist element, which has consumed the party. Donald Trump has, has you know, in 2016, he sort of pulled an inside straight only because he was running against somebody who had higher negatives than he did in Hillary Clinton. 2018 was a devastating election for Donald Trump. 2020, he lost re-election. 2022, the midterms were a, a horrible uh, election cycle for what should have been a remarkably big year for Republicans. So the entire time Donald Trump has been the face of the party, the, the Republicans have suffered uh, considerably, losing governorships, Senate seats, uh, certainly the margins in the House, state legislatures. And 2024, I think, will be probably another step in that direction. So they have to start distancing themselves from this Trump brand whether that can be done after eight years of doubling down on it, I don't know. But that's clearly, obviously, the direction they need to move in. Mike Madrid, thank you so much for joining us today. Republican political consultant based in Sacramento. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. Later in the show, we will be joined by Ken Burns to talk about his latest documentary focusing on the near extinction of an iconic American creature. Uh, right now, though, are we seeing the death of cable TV as one company makes a big streaming move? Paul Verna is a media analyst for Insider Intelligence. Uh, thanks so much for coming on board with us today. Thanks for having me, Rob. So uh, first of all, let's get this out of the way. What uh, one company is making this big streaming move that might signal the death knell of cable TV? Well, I think you're talking about CNN, but actually we could be talking about any number of companies because they're all in the midst of this big inflection point. But assuming you're, you're asking about CNN, let's go there. All right, let's go there. 
<laughs> so CNN going on, uh, you know, the, a lot of people kept their cable TV subscriptions because, you know, they want to watch sports and, and news for the most part, because just about everything else you could already get on streaming. But it's going on two years for me now that I cut the cord because I realized all the shows that I liked, I could get on the apps and all the live TV I watch, I could get on, let's say, YouTube TV, and I would save money from what I was paying in my satellite television subscription. So I cut the cord. Now that it's changing because the streaming companies are raising their rates and the streaming business is contracting too. Uh, But is cable TV gone uh, no matter which way it goes? I think it's eventually going to be gone. It does have a few years left in it, if nothing else, because there's an older population that's still very much attached to getting their news and sports and entertainment through that channel. And they're not as ready as you may have been to to cut that cord. So that's going to go on for a while. Also, there's still money to be made through those linear TV channels, traditional TV channels. But eventually, it is all going the way of digital and the way of streaming. I'm actually kind of interested in the infrastructure of cable because uh, over the decades, cable, of course, has grown to the point where at one point most households in America were wired to cable. And that's a lot of infrastructure that has been built up over a long period of time. If cable actually eventually kind of fades off into the distance, what happens to all that? Does it get repurposed? Well, a lot of that infrastructure is in the pipes that go into your home, and those are actually being used to deliver broadband, to deliver internet service by the same companies that have been supplying you with paid TV services over all these years. So it's almost as if they have repurposed that infrastructure, and they're actually making quite a bit of money from those internet services. If you look at the financials of most of those big providers, they are doing better. They're they, they're gaining subscribers on the broadband side while losing subscribers on the pay TV side. But as companies, they are doing pretty well because they're still getting those monthly subscriptions. It's just for a different type of service. That's a very good point because uh, I was going to ask you, if let's say cable TV does go away, these companies providing cable TV have expanded into broadband service. That's how I get my internet at at my house. Uh, I just opted for the internet package. I did not want the cable package, right? Uh, right? So if cable TV goes away, will these companies actually make more money if they are able to take that off of their books and they focus instead on the broadband business? Well, that's a tough one to answer because they have made a lot of money over the years, but those revenue streams have been dwindling and the margins have been getting tighter as they have pivoted to broadband. So it's not like they are going to suddenly make more money. I think this is a long transition. But at the end of the day, these companies have relationships with consumers that maybe for a different service than they have been in the past, but those relationships are still very strong. The other thing is that with all the cord cutting that's happening, people are subscribing to this broadband, not just to get internet for their computers, but to get connectivity to their TV. So all of the entertainment and sports and news that people will be watching is going to be delivered one way or another by these companies through their pipes. Paul Verna, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, talking about the the possible death of cable TV, if not now, maybe somewhere down the road. Uh, he's a media analyst for Insider Intelligence. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. 
He has uh, covered many landmark American stories from the Civil War to the birth of jazz, from baseball to national parks. And now award-winning PBS filmmaker Ken Burns is turning his attention to a shaggy animal that almost became extinct. His latest documentary, it's called The American Buffalo, and Ken Burns joins us now. Ken, thanks for being back with us. It's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. So why The American Buffalo? Why a documentary on The American Buffalo? Well, you know, we've been thinking about this for several decades and wanting to do the biography of this most important of animals uh, in North America. It's the largest land mammal in North America. It's now our national mammal. But its story is so intertwined with so much American history, good, bad, and otherwise, that we realized by focusing on them, we could help to understand particularly the unique 10,000, 12,000-year-old relationship the buffalo had with native peoples and native peoples had with the buffalo, where it was not just uh, a source of sustenance, uh, but also a spiritual uh, being that was a part of their creation myth. And all of that got interrupted dramatically and tragically when white Americans moving west in Manifest Destiny then discovered that the hides of the buffalo uh, could create what run the belts of the machinery of the Industrial Revolution, and they were slaughtered by the tens of millions uh, just for their hides. Their carcasses uh, were left to rot, the heads, the hooves, the horns left there, and basically starved out Native peoples and made them much more easy to subjugate and to move under reservations. Then at the same time, a group of people, Native as well as uh, other Americans, began a campaign to save it. And when there had been perhaps as many as 70 million bison before Columbus, uh, they couldn't find any. There were less than a thousand, and most of them were in zoos and private collections. Roaming wild and free, we have no idea. But the buffalo was saved by an extraordinarily interesting group of people. So as you can see, it's just it's it's just eating up, you know, not only miles and miles of territory, but chapter after chapter of American history. And seeing it through their eyes, um, you get a, a new and I think at times privileged position to see uh, how uh, American history unfolds from a slightly different angle. You know, we're facing so many uh, problems in the world today uh, due to climate change, and a lot of people do look at it, and I have to confess I'm one of them, uh, that climate change, uh, we've waited too long. There's so many issues coming our way, and we can't really do anything about it because we've, uh, we're too late. Uh, but the story of the American buffalo, as I understand it, uh, not only were they just about wiped out, I mean, they were really just about wiped out. Very few of them left, but they were saved. Are there lessons that we can learn today about the saving of the American buffalo that we can apply to other challenges that we have? I I really do think so. That's not part of uh, the purview of our film, but it's suggested at the end that maybe our two parts are really the first two acts of a three-act play. We've saved the buffalo. It's not going to go extinct. This parable of of de-extinction can be helpful as we confront the pernicious and dangerous and relentless problems of climate change, which will include the near extinction or the extinction of many mammals, some of them large, some of them dear to our hearts on this planet, and that maybe the story of the buffalo provides a blueprint for how that might take place. But saving them as a zoo animal or in corrals or limited places to roam is not the same as them being wild and free. And so 
a lot of what's going on now with native peoples, more than 80 tribes have herds of their own now, and they are rematriating, giving buffalo to other tribes that have been disconnected for far longer than the Plain Indians from their mythic beast and this you know, source of sustainability. They used everything from the tail to the snout, everything for tools, for, for shelter, for clothing, for um, shoes, for weapons, whatever it might be that the buffalo is central to that. And as I said, to their spiritual existence as well. Uh, now the question is, do we have the will and the courage to create those kind of ecosystems and habitats where the buffalo could roam wild and free and help repopulate the Great Plains, which were once called the American Serengeti and are now essentially silent and monocultural. That would help also, I think, with global warming uh, in in another way, in climate change in another way. But I think just the fact that individuals got together, a motley collection of folks, sometimes for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motives, and save this beast is a really good story to tell. Ken, you mentioned uh, early on that you had been thinking about doing a documentary about the buffalo for quite some time. So take us into your mind a bit. How do you decide when you're going to do a particular documentary about a particular subject? Well, none of them involve focus groups or panel discussions. They're all kind of gut decisions, whatever lots of ideas, whatever drops down to your heart or your gut is it says yes. And and then you've got a real uh, question of how it fits in because, you know, we're working on several projects at once and we want to do it well. And uh, we made films on the West, on Lewis and Clark, on the national parks. And each time our interest in the Buffalo increased, I'm actually kind of happy that we waited. Some projects you just say, hey, let's do country music and you start the next day uh, for several years working on something like that. This one we waited, new scholarship has, has happened and it allowed us also and I hope get to be better filmmakers and not just sort of pay lip service to other perspectives, particularly native ones that often get lumped together in a singular sort of them, when in fact they're the original Americans and uh, their diversity among the different nations is as distinct as say Frenchmen are from uh, Italians. You know, it's it's it was important to us to to wait and find this daylight, the bandwidth to do it, and then work for the last several years to tell this really complicated story. I mean, you just can't imagine for the people using every single part of this beast from tail to snout, watching the hide hunters come in and strip off just the hides and leaving, you know, 800 pounds of meat, you know, to rot in the, in the prairie. And then eventually even the bones turned out to be valuable for a nascent chemical industry. In fact, the largest, um, uh, industry in Detroit is the Michigan Carbon Works, grinding up the bones of the buffalo that get collected by in mountain size. There's one one of the famous photographs of the period is of a guy standing on this mountain of buffalo skulls and and bones, and somebody standing down below, you know, several stories above them. It just wow. it's it's a, you know this is what it is. This is the maybe I've buried the lead. This is the largest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world, period. It's on us. It's not just buffalo. It's also elk and grizzlies and others, but it's principally the buffalo. And no other time in recorded history has there been that great uh, a killing of wildlife. You know, uh, I, in, in, 
the United States. I, I, I'm so glad that you're on the show with this because I'm kind of a Ken Burns fan. And, and my first experience was the Civil War uh, film. And I remember being so knocked out that it was so compelling and so interesting, even though it was basically several hours of still photographs from the Civil War. But the uh, the narration was so compelling. You managed to take topics that uh, some people wouldn't normally be interested in, but make it something that is so interesting you can't stop watching. I'm thinking of like, say your film on country music. I'm you know not a country music fan. There's nothing wrong with it. I was just never into it. Uh, but I was, uh, I was entranced by that uh, documentary as well as some of the other shows you've worked on. What is the secret of the magic, and do you realize you have a magic in being able to take a topic that someone might think, well, that's kind of boring, but then they watch it, and it's not boring at all? Yeah, I think it's how the time we take. Um, we're not, we're, you know, PBS has got one foot in the marketplace tentatively and the other proudly out of it. And so we're not, we don't have a sort of a TikTok, you know, we've got to get this done. There's a certain... Um, you know, metronomic beat to it that we, we've got to do it. And we, we're just dedicated to really complicated stories. You know, a couple of years ago, we came out with a four-part uh, eight-hour film on the life of Muhammad Ali. And all the time we were working on it, people were saying, the world does not need another documentary on Muhammad Ali. Some of the greatest documentaries ever made, like When We Were Kings, um, uh, you know, are about Ali. And we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, and we made one that was not just about a particular fight or about a particular fight with the U.S. or a sequence of fights, but soup to nuts from his birth to his death and seeing it. And, and it was really interesting to watch how everybody sort of laid down their swords and went, wow, I had no idea. Even people in his family said, I had no idea. We found material. And so to me, I think it's the deep dive. I think that is the commitment to just finding stuff out that – that, that people haven't put together. Ken, as you've gone from, from year to year in documentary to documentary, how has your process changed? You know, very, very little. I still live in the same farmhouse in rural New Hampshire that I've lived for the last 44 and a half years. Um, we sort of do it in a kind of old-fashioned way. They're very labor-intensive. They're very sort of scholarly involved. We're, we're deep into research, you know, uh, for, for many, many months. I've tried really hard not to let that um, sort of the integrity of that aspect of the process change. I waited 10 extra years before I switched to digital editing. I waited another 10 years after that before I switched. I had to basically switch from shooting film. I still do shoot film uh, for parts of things, but I, I, um, I, I've wanted this to be about storytelling. I have a, I have a, a neon sign in the main editing room. Um, that says in cursive, it's lowercase, it's complicated. You know, there's not a filmmaker alive that when a, a scene is working, you don't want to touch it. But, you know, what, what you're obligated to do, because history is human life, real true human life is really dynamic and complex, filled with undertow and contradiction, mm-hmm. is you just have to honor that. And sometimes you take apart a scene that's working perfectly in order to make it complicated. And maybe it doesn't work as perfectly, but it's truer. And I think what happens is the audience just responds to things because it, it feels like their experience of other people. They're not there's not just a cipher. They're not just a, that's a villain. That's a good person. Sometimes the good people have really bad aspects. And sometimes the villains have positive access, aspects that you have to wrestle with. Right. And that's what storytelling is about. You know, it's, it's, you know, we we're filled with arguments. The, the writer 
Richard Powers, the novelist, said, you know, the best arguments in the world won't change anybody's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And so uh-huh. we're just trying to figure out what what is the ingredient in a good story. Ken, before we let you go, uh, American Buffalo, uh, when does it air? Uh, how can we see it? Yeah, uh, pretty easy. It, it airs on October 16th and 17th. Part one will be shown twice back to back. Uh, starting at 8, you know, check local listings, and then again at 10. And the next night, part two, uh, double pumped, as they say. And then it'll be available immediately for uh, uh, streaming at pbs.org or on the PBS app. And uh, eventually, I think there might even be something, I think they're called Blu-rays or DVDs, something (laughs) like that, which will also be out. And there's there's a great companion book by the writer of this series, my longtime collaborator, uh, Dayton Duncan, in which I've written the introduction, which is called Blood Memory, about the story of the buffalo that we tell, but of course having much more details, meaning he got to keep in the book all the stuff I cut out. Okay. All right. Kim Burns, thank you so much for joining us today, a PBS filmmaker. Uh, new documentary about the American buffalo. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back Monday at 1 p.m.